Hello and welcome to the second episode of Blackwells Presents. On Saturday the 2nd of February, we were lucky enough to be joined by Johan Hari and Nigel Warburton as part of the Philosophy in the Bookshop series. This series of talks takes place on the first Saturday of every month in the Norrington Room with Nigel Warburton, author of A Little History of Philosophy, leading the discussion for each talk. This time, Nigel Warburton was in conversation with writer and journalist Johan Hari, author of best-selling book on how to improve our mental health, Lost Connections. A radically new way of thinking about mental health, what really causes depression and anxiety, and how can we really solve them? Award-winning journalist Johan Hari suffered from depression since he was a child and started taking antidepressants when he was a teenager. He was told that his problems were caused by a chemical imbalance in his brain. As an adult trained in the social sciences, he began to investigate whether this was true, and he learned that almost everything we have been told about depression and anxiety is wrong. Across the world, Hari found social scientists who were uncovering evidence that depression and anxiety are largely caused by key problems with the way that we live today. Hari's journey took him from a mind-blowing series of experiments in Baltimore to an Amish community in Indiana to an uprising in Berlin. Once he had uncovered nine real causes of depression and anxiety, they led him to scientists who were discovering seven very different solutions, ones at work. When this talk was announced, somebody said to me, what's that got to do with philosophy? And this isn't an apology, this is an explanation. Um, this book has sometimes been described as being about depression, and I think that's, it, that's the catalyst for the book, I think it's fair to say. But actually, it's about how we should live, which is the basic philosophical question. And within the book, Johann talks about that question that Socrates asked himself, the fundamental philosophical question, the ethical question, you know, what is a good life? What is a good life for a human being? And so this is not an apology. This is an explanation of why this is in a series um, called Philosophy in the Bookshop. Um, so just to begin, can we be begin with depression and get that out of the way? I mean, <laughs> just dispense with the problem of depression in three minutes, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, perhaps you could tell us something about can, how you, you came to write the book. Oh, sorry, it's not okay. Can you guys hear Nigel? Right? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah, great. Um, yeah, I should kind of just say a few things very quickly first, which is one is uh, I have to apologise to the audience. I have drunk so much lemon sip today that I'm I, like it would kill a whole field of cows. So I apologise if I seem slightly. I've got a bit of a cold. Um, I also should apologise for one thing, which is. Uh, you see this picture of me here, which they used as my publicity picture, right? Which, as you can tell, is an extremely misleading picture. I once, uh, every time I see it, I feel a bit subconscious because this was when I had food poisoning for like two months. I was really ill. And my cheekbones briefly, it, I realised, I now know I need to be starved for two whole months for my cheekbones to re-emerge. And within two days of eating, they were gone again. I've never been seen since. And it always reminds me of my niece when she was, uh, my niece was about six. She was drawing me and my mother. And she was looking at us very intensely. And she looked at me, she said, Johan, you know, you know when children do adults, we just do a big circle and a little face in the middle. And I said, yeah. She said, that's not what adults actually look like, is it? And I said, no. And I thought, it's really good. She's learning about perspective. It's brilliant. She said, but the great thing about you is 
you actually do look like that. <laughs> so it makes you really easy to draw. Um, <clears throat> I just want to say one other thing about this bookshop, which is that uh, I love this bookshop. And the last time I came here, one of the booksellers recommended a novel to me. It's the best novel I read last year, and I really want to recommend everyone read it, um, get it instead of my book. It's amazing. It's called Their Brilliant Careers. It's by an Australian writer called Ryan O'Neill. And it's totally fantastic, and I would never have read it had it not been for one of the booksellers here. So, um, In terms of depression, yeah, I think the question you ask is really uh, important, because in a way, what I did not understand at the start of writing this book was how philosophical this question is, right? And, you know, I've been trained in political philosophy, it's what I studied at Cambridge, but... I wrote the book because there were these two mysteries hanging over me that were really troubling me. And I wanted to understand the answers to. And I didn't realise it would lead me into philosophy or back to philosophy that I thought about a lot earlier in my life. The, the, the first mystery was, I'm 40 years old. I turned 40 a few days ago. And every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased here in Britain and across the Western world. And I wanted to understand why. Why are so many of us finding it so hard to get through the day, right? Uh, the, the second mystery was a more personal one, obviously related to that, which is that when I was a teenager, I went to my doctor and I explained that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me. I didn't understand it. I, did, I couldn't control it. I felt very ashamed of it. And my doctor told me a story that I now realise was a really oversimplified story. And is in fact a philosophical story. It has a philosophy of its own. Uh, and, 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 and a philosophy that is uh, problematic in all sorts of ways. That, that, that story my doctor said is, well, we know why people feel this way. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. Some people are naturally lacking it or, or have a natural imbalance of it. Um, you're clearly one of them. All we need to do is give you these drugs. You're going to be fine. I felt a tremendous amount of relief at this. I started taking an antidepressant called Siroxat. And I felt much better. For a few months, I got a really significant boost, uh, which is typical, by the way, um, and as time went by, this feeling of pain started to come back. So I went back to my doctor. Um, I got given a higher dose. Again, I felt a bit better. Again, more quickly this time, I felt terrible again. And I was in this cycle of taking higher and higher doses until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose, at the end of which I still felt awful. And I wanted to understand well, what's going on here. So as you know, for the book, I went on this big, long journey. I wanted to interview the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and people with very different philosophical points of view about it, from an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, um, and they're not like the film witness, um, that, or <laughs> to, to a city in Brazil where they banned advertising to see if that would make people feel better, because it would shift their values, to, um, you know, to a lab in Baltimore where they were giving people psychedelics to see if that would help with their depression depression asked me afterwards. Uh, and, and I learned loads of things, but I think the core of what I learned is there's nine causes of depression and anxiety for which there's scientific evidence. Nine. Yeah. Uh, there may be others that we don't yet know about. Uh, in fact, there will be others that we don't yet know about. Um, and, and to understand them, I think you're totally right, is a profoundly philosophical mm. question. Um, probably can't go through all nine, but we'll touch on the, some of the most important ones. And one of the most important, I think, for me, is environmental question, not, not the physical environment, let's say the psychological environment. The, there's, obviously there are physiological causes of any change to our psyche, unless you believe in some kind of soul stuff that does, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're a Cartesian possibly, um, but if you're not, then there is a material understanding, you know, everything that we think is material in some sense, um, but to reduce depression to material, purely material causes is probably um, a simplistic way of thinking about something which is to some degree existential in the sense of you're in a position in the world 
Um, you begin by talking about some of Tyrrell Harris's research on the, on the kinds of factors that could be um, causing depression beyond simply having an imbalance in the brain. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah. So there's three kinds of cause of all mental health problems, right? And they play out in differing degrees with different conditions and in different individuals, right? So one is biological. There's very real biological components to depression and anxiety, and it did all mental health problems, right? Um, uh, for example, your genes can make you more vulnerable to these problems, just like some people find it easier to put on weight. Uh, there are real brain changes that happen when you become depressed that can make it harder to get out. There are psychological causes, how you think about yourself, uh, childhood trauma, for example, which we might talk about, is a huge factor, but there are many psychological factors. And there are social factors, right, the, so, the ways we live. Um, and one of the things that united a lot of the causes of depression and anxiety that I learned about that partly flowed from this incredible breakthrough made by Dr. Till Harris, who you mentioned, is everyone here knows all of you have natural physical needs, right? Obviously, you need food, you need water, you need clean air, you need shelter. If I took those things away from you, you'd be in trouble really quickly, right? But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we've built is good at lots of things. I'm really glad to be alive today, right? I just had to go to a dentist. Believe me, I'm glad to be alive today. <laughs> but, but we are getting... I, I think there's good evidence that with a lot of these core psychological needs, we're getting less and less good at meeting them. And while it's certainly not the only thing that's going on, I think it's the key factor in why this is rising. Because our biology has not changed in the last 30 years, right? It's not been that every year human biology suddenly radically shifted. We do know these social causes have been significantly increasing. And that can sound a bit fancy in the abstract, so I can talk mm. about some specifics. Yeah, specifics would be good. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll give you an example that I think everyone will immediately understand. Um, we are the loneliest society there has ever been. We're just behind the Americans. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer, not the average, but the most common answer is none. Half of all Americans asked how many people know you well say nobody. And I spent a lot of time uh, talking with an amazing man called Professor John Cassiopo, who was at the University of Chicago, who sadly just died. He, he was the leading expert in the world on loneliness. And Professor Cassiopo said to me, why do we exist? All of us in this room, why do we exist, right? One key reason is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They often weren't faster than the animals they took down. They often weren't um, bigger than the animals they took down. But they were much better at banding together into tribes and cooperating, right? Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. And, and we are the first humans ever to try to disband our tribes, right? And you think about, if you separate a bee from its hive and look what happens, it will go crazy, right? If in the circumstances where we evolved, you had, um, you know, a human had been separated from the tribe, they were depressed and anxious for a really good reason. They were in terrible danger, right? Those are the impulses we still have as human beings. Professor Cassiopo showed this through a range of both long-term sociological research and experimental psychology um, that I think is really definitive. He proved... Loneliness causes depression and anxiety, and there is an enormous amount of evidence that loneliness has increased, right? So I think that helps us to understand one deeper question than this purely biological story that I was told by my doctor. And a key thing I was asking, I don't want to just diagnose our problem, a key question I was asking was, if, in the research for this book, was, well, what do we do to, 
do about that, right? Because that can seem such a huge thing. And one of the heroes of Lost Connections is a, a man who pioneered an approach that, that deals with this in a really remarkable way. His name is Dr. Sam Everington. And he's a GP in East London, where I lived for a long time, a poor part of East London. And Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him with terrible depression and anxiety. And like me, he thinks there is some role for chemical antidepressants. But he could see two things. Firstly, um, the people he was treating were depressed for perfectly understandable reasons, like loneliness. And secondly, giving them antidepressants gave some of them a boost, but most of them became depressed again. So he decided to pioneer a different approach that's subsequently been scientifically monitored in other countries. Uh, one day, a woman came to see him called Lisa Cunningham, who'd been shut away in her home with crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. I got to know Lisa quite well later. Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'm going to carry on giving you these drugs. I'm also going to prescribe something else. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. He said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is come and turn out a couple of times a week. I'm going to come too because I've been depressed and anxious. And on Dog Shit Alley, we're going to meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people. And we're going to find something to do together. He called it social prescribing, prescribing for people to take part in a group. The first time the group met, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. But they decided, okay, we're going to do something together. What can we do? These were inner city East London people. They knew nothing about gardening. They decided they were going to learn about gardening. They started to read books. They started to watch YouTube. Um, and and they, they, they started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. They started to see things grow. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. But something I think as important happened. They started to form a tribe. They started to get to know each other and care about each other. If one of them didn't turn up, they'd go and look for them. Hey, are you okay? They started to solve each other's problems. One of them, this is an extreme example, but one of them, for example, he'd been thrown out by his girlfriend. He was sleeping on the night bus, right? Everyone else was like, well, of course you're depressed if you're sleeping on a bus. They started to pressure Tower Hamlet's council to get this guy a house. They succeeded. It was the first time any of them had done something for someone else in years, and it made them feel great. The way Lisa put it to me, as that garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a very similar program that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for an obvious reason, a reason I saw play out all over the world, from Sydney to Sao Paulo to San Francisco. The best strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with the underlying reasons why so many of us feel so bad. It's interesting that... that echoes something that John Stuart Mill, who was himself a depressive, and he had a terrible dark period in his life. Where well, and horrific it, childhood trauma yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, exp explanations, yeah, because yeah, yeah. he was hothoused as a child but, uh, and, and felt he'd never been allowed to play yeah. as a child. Yeah. Social um, services would definitely have been called on. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Another version is he was homeschooled. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like then, I say, um, social services would definitely have been called. Sorry, <laughs> no, homeschool no, it's actually legal yeah. and, and widely practiced. Um, but he, he said that the pursuit of happiness it didn't get him out of his depression. If you like, I'm, I want to be happy, I have to pursue greater happiness. It was immersing himself in other things that made him happy. It, and that's, it's, it's like it's the indirect route to happiness is to, is to do something for other people, as you say. And, and I like, think, you, and, yeah, I think that's so important. I, th I thought about Mill when I was writing the book, actually, and I think there's a, one of the, there were, there were two causes of depression and anxiety that I learned about the book that I found particularly personally challenging because um, I could feel how much they played out in my own life. Uh, and I'll talk about one of them, and if anyone wants to ask about the other one, do the question, or if, if, if it'll come up with Nigel. Um, so everyone knows that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, right? 
very well documented. But there's equally strong evidence that a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. So for thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, you're going to feel like shit. That's not an exact quote from Confucius. That is the, <laughs> you can, you can <laughs> test me on this, Nigel. But that's the gist of what he said, right? And a huge number of philosophers have said. But interestingly, nobody had scientifically investigated this until an incredible man I got to know called Professor Tim Kasser, who's at Knox College in Illinois. And Professor Kasser showed a few really important things. So prior to him, it was known, all human beings are a, a mixture of two kinds of motive. Everyone here is, right? So let's imagine you play the piano. If you play the piano in the morning because you love it and it gives you joy, that's called an intrinsic reason for playing the piano, right? You're not doing that thing to get anything out of it further down the line. You're just doing it because that's the thing you want to be doing. It's a thing that gives you meaning or satisfaction or pleasure. Okay, now imagine you play the piano, not because you love it, but, I don't know, because your parents are massively pressuring you to be a piano maestro and that's their dream, or to show off clips on Instagram, or uh, in a dive bar to pay the rent, right? That would be an extrinsic reason to play the piano. You're not doing the experience for the, because that experience is meaningful to you, you're doing it to get something further down the line, right? Now, obviously, we're all a mixture of both these motives, it's just being human, but Professor Kasser has shown two things. Firstly, the more you are driven by extrinsic motives, the more your intrinsic motives are starved, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious by a really quite significant amount. And secondly, he's shown as a culture, as a society, we have become much more driven by these extrinsic values, right? We are immersed from the moment we're born in a machinery that tells us if you don't feel good, the solution is to go and buy something, to spend to show off, right? More 18-month-old children recognise the McDonald's M than know their own surname, right? We, we're in this machine. Now, it's the most banal possible philosophical insight to say none of you are going to lie on your deathbed and think about all the likes you got on Instagram or all the shoes you bought, right? But as Professor Kasser put it to me, we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life, right? And that machine has been ramped up and ramped up. And Donald Trump is obviously an extreme and dysfunctional illustration of where the culture has gone, right? This man who is so extrinsically motivated that he lives in a golden tower. He's married to a woman he clearly values solely for his looks. He even says he would have sex with his own daughter if she wasn't his daughter. Such an extreme poisoning of extrinsic values, right? And have you ever seen a more unhappy person than Donald Trump, right? Mm. So you can see how this, this, this plays out. So we've got less than 10 minutes. Oh, sorry. No, that's <laughs> good. <laughs> um, how do we find meaningful values then? I mean, what's the positive message? Because there are some guidelines within the book about this that are based on empirical work and so on. It's not, this is um, not just like a guess, but you've, you've got some, some pretty clear guidelines there. So Professor Kasser did this really interesting um, experiment, uh, which led to some other research. So it was in, initiated by this guy called Nathan Dungan, who uh, I interviewed a fair bit, who's a, he's a financial advisor in Minneapolis. And uh, Nathan was, he was a financial advisor to adults, and Nathan got called by a school in Minneapolis. It was like in a middle-class area, and they said, look, we've got a big problem. Can you come and help us? Um, there were kids in this school, lo most of the kids in this school were demanding really expensive things like Nike sneakers or whatever, at trainers, and, sorry, American there, uh, and they were, um, and the kids were getting really genuinely freaked out and enraged if they couldn't get it, and the parents often couldn't afford it, and the school was like, could you come in and give these kids budgeting advice, right? Financial advice. 
So Nathan comes in and he did what he would have done with adults and very quickly realises these kids don't give a damn about budgeting, right? This is not what's... Something deeper is going on here, right? They're really feeling this burning existential need for these particular kinds of trainers or whatever. So he, he, he paired up with Professor Kasser and he did an experiment. It's really simple. Uh, and it's something that people here can try in groups with their friends. Um, so what they did is they got the uh, teenagers and their parents, just ordinary teenagers and their parents to come and meet once a fortnight for, I think it was six months. And the first sessions, they just said, I want you to draw a list of everything you've got to have, right? And of course, people say food and all that stuff first. But quite quickly, they go, Nike sneakers. Quite often, the parents would say, I need a Mercedes, or they, you know, something clearly they do not need, right? Um, and at first, they would say, well, tell me about wh- how you will feel if you get these things. And Almost always people would say, well, I would feel accepted by the group. People would envy me. People would like me. It doesn't take long when you take these things to the surface before people say, oh, why do I think I need these trainers in order to be liked? What, what, do I want to be part of a group that would value me just for a piece of plastic, right? It's quite, once you get people to articulate what lies beneath these longings, you don't need, you don't need to do a hard sell on them, right? They begin to take them apart themselves. But the next bit, which I think was more, so that was taking apart the junk values, the extrinsic values. The next part was just saying, well, talk about times in your life that have been really meaningful to you. And people would talk about different things. Sometimes it was playing the guitar, writing, running, moments of love and connection with their kids, being on the beach, whatever it might be. You say, well, how can we build more of this in your life and less of these junk values. And they just kept reporting back to each other every couple of weeks about how they were doing it. And this was monitored. Just that act of talking about the junk values, talking about the extrinsic values and meaningful values, led to a really significant and measurable effect. Uh, some really significant and measurable shift in these people's values, which we know correlates with lower depression and anxiety. These insights are just beneath the surface, right? It's not like explaining Chomsky and linguistics or, you know, Foucault or something. People know this. It's that we need to build structures that enable us to act on what we know. Okay, so we get beyond confusing desires with needs, and we get beyond um, pursuing things that stop us having meaningful experiences. Uh, But most of us are stuck with work. It's not not just confusing desires with needs. It's it's, it's worse than that. It's thinking uh, we need something we don't need. It's actually misunderstanding the nature of Mm -hmm. our own needs. Mm -hmm. Sorry. No, that's good. Um, uh, Absolutely. Thanks for that. Um, But but what about work? Because this is, for most adults, (laughs) this is a feature of life. Yeah. And for most adults, it's a place where they lack control over their, their hours, but also lots of outcomes. And we know that it's where people spend most of their waking hours. And it, and it, it obviously is a big part of people's life. We haven't even mentioned it yet. Yeah, so this is, I think, the most important cause of depression that I write about in the book and the most important solution. If you're going to say you can do one thing that will reduce depression and anxiety in this society... I would talk about the solution to this. So I notice lots of the people I know who are depressed and anxious, their depression and anxiety focuses around their work. So I start to look at what's the evidence for how people feel about their work. And uh, Gallup, the opinion poll company, did a massive three-year study of this. What they found is 13% of us like our work most of the time. 63% of us are what they call sleepworking you don't like it, you don't hate it, but lots of approving nods there, you understand what I mean? Um, and, and 24% of us hate and fear our jobs, right? It's quite a strike by that. 87% of us don't like the thing we're doing 
most of the time. And that thing is spreading over more and more of our lives. The average British person now answers their first work email at 7.43 a.m. and clocks out at 7.15 p.m. Starting to think, could this be having some effect on our mental health? Um, the thing that we do almost all the time. So I, I started to look at the social science around this and I, and I learned that an incredible Australian social scientist called Professor Michael Marmot, some people who know his work, um, had discovered the core of what causes depression and anxiety. It's not the only thing, at work. If you go to work tomorrow and you are controlled, so you have low or no choices over your work, you are much more likely to become depressed and anxious. I think there's a debate about why, but I think it relates to needs. You need to feel your life is meaningful. You need to feel you're good at something. And if you're controlled, that disrupts your meaning making. And when I first learned this, I felt, ironically, quite depressed because I thought about, uh, yeah, I thought about my family, right? My brother's an Uber driver. My, my grandmother's job was to clean toilets. My dad was a bus driver. And I thought, are we saying, okay, you've got this elite 13% of the top, people like you and me get to have nice lives and we get to control our work and be happy and then everyone else is condemned to this misery. But Professor, I kept going back to see Professor Marmot to kind of drill down into this. And he said to me, no, you don't understand. It's not the work that makes you depressed. It's being controlled at work. And it turns out there is an antidepressant for that. Um, I went to interview in Baltimore a woman called Meredith Keogh, who is um, a bit younger than me. And Meredith used to go to bed every Sunday night just sick with anxiety about the week ahead. She was a receptionist in an office. As Meredith would tell you, it wasn't the worst job in the world, right? She wasn't being bullied or harassed. But it was monotonous. It was boring. And she couldn't bear the thought this was going to be the next you know, 40 years of her life till she retired. So one day with her husband, Josh, she did this quite bold thing. And when I explain it, you're going to think I'm saying, you as individuals should do that. And you're going to say, I can't do that. You're right. Most of us can't. This is an argument for something deeper. So Josh had worked in bike stores since he was a a teenager. And especially in the US, that's really insecure work, right? You can be fired like that. You don't even have sick pay or holiday, guaranteed holiday rights or anything. Um, And as you can imagine, you're controlled. You just do what the boss tells you, right? And one day, Josh and his colleagues were sitting in this shop, and they said to themselves, what does our boss actually do? They liked their boss. He wasn't a terrible person, but they were like, we seem to fix all the bikes, and he seems to make all the money. (laughs) He doesn't have a great model for us. They decided they were going to set up a bike store of their own that works on a different principle. So the previous shop they'd worked in was a corporation. Most people here who are not in the public sector were working corporations. You know how it works? Very recent human invention in the history of human philosophy, right? It's like an army. The boss at the top controls it. He's like the ultimate dictator. And sometimes he's a nice dictator. Most of the time, he or she is not. Uh, And we have to obey or you're out, right? They decided they were going to set up a, a bike store that worked on a different principle, an older principle, a principle with deep philosophical roots. What they set up is the store, Baltimore Bicycle Works, is a democratic cooperative. So they don't have a boss. They run the business together. They take the decisions together. In practice, they agree most of the time, but if they don't, they vote. Um, They share the profits. They share out the good tasks and the crap tasks, so no one gets stuck with the crap tasks. Um, And one of the things that was totally fascinating to me, spending time at Baltimore Bicycle Works, totally in line with Professor Marmot's findings, is how many of them talked about how they'd been depressed and anxious before, but were not depressed and anxious now. And it's important to say, it's not like they quit their jobs fixing bikes and went off to become Beyonce's backing singers, right? They fixed bikes before, they fix bikes now. What changed? Now they have control over their work. Now if they have an idea, they can persuade their colleagues and turn it into practice. Think about how many people you know who are depressed and anxious, who would feel very differently if they knew that tomorrow they were going, or Monday, they were going into a workplace 
that they controlled with their colleagues, where if there has to be a boss, he's accountable to them, not just the other way around, right? Where they, where they have agency over their work. Um, there is no reason why we should be organising our societies so that most of us are spending our time in institutions that make us feel terrible, right? That does not have to happen. There have been all sorts of civilising transformations um, this is clearly not, and it's not even economically productive. A study at Cornell University found that democratic businesses grow on average four times faster than non-democratic businesses for obvious reasons. The workers are really committed to them, right? They really, you, you bring your all to a job where you have control and agency in a way you don't when you're deadened and controlled, right? And, and I know that sounds like a big thing and obviously is a big thing. But everyone in this room has lived through big changes. I'm gay. I didn't even hear the concept of gay marriage until I was 21 years old, right? The women here don't need me to mansplain this, but my grandmothers weren't allowed to have their own bank accounts once they got married, right? There are big civilizing transformations that happen all the time when we fight for them. And I think that you're absolutely right. To go to the core of depression, we have to go to what most people are doing most of the time. And most people, most of the time, are doing something that either makes them depressed or less happy and productive than they could be. On that note, uh, <laughs> um, a big thank you for that amazing um, introduction to the book. And um, we'll have a chance for some questions after this, but thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Nigel. Thank you for listening to this episode of Blackwells Presents. Both Johan and Nigel's books are available to purchase from our website or in-store at Blackwells Broad Street. Follow our social media on Twitter and Instagram at Blackwell Oxford, or follow our YouTube Blackwells Bookshops. The next episode will feature Daisy Johnson in conversation with Kristen Rupenian about Kristen's book, You Know You Want This. Thank you again for listening.